Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. This is the word of the Lord, church. Amen? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. No doubt you've already seen the title of my message. One of our favorite subjects, right? Besides money. What's he talking on? Money? No, pride. Do we need to address this issue of pride, do you think? How many would admit to be prideful? Every hand ought to go up. We're all prideful. I had had somebody tell me last night, Pastor, I'm very humble. (laughs) What do you say to that? Okay. Okay. What do you suppose is the defining characteristic of every Sinful human heart. Look at Proverbs 21 with me. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, or what? Sin. Pride. Pride. What causes people to forget God? Pride. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. God says to his people, he says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. 
Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become what? Proud. And you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Has God brought us out of the land of slavery? Yeah, the land of sin and death and hell. He's brought us into land flowing with milk and honey, so to speak, right? We dare not forget him. Hosea chapter 13, verse 6. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot me. Wow. That's a scary thought. Is it easy to forget God? It is. We get busy during the week. Stuff happens. You forget him. Forget to talk to him. You don't read your Bible every morning, every evening. You don't pray. You don't spend time with him because stuff happens. What causes people to be unfaithful to God? What do you think? Pride. Because 2 Chronicles chapter 26. After Uzziah became powerful, he's one of the kings of Judah. After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God, entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That was not Uzziah's job as the king to burn incense. Whose job was that? It's the job of the priests, right? Look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 32. What causes people to be ungrateful to God? In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. But Hezekiah's heart was so proud that he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Pride. Pride can cause us to forget God, to be unfaithful to him, to be ungrateful. It was pride that sin, through pride, that sin entered God's creation. People wonder, how, how, did, how did the world get so messed up? I had a conversation with a man the other day, and he was telling me about his religious beliefs and spirituality. And I asked him, I said, tell me about evil. How did evil get here? How come there's wars? How come people lie? How come all this stuff? He says, well, it just is. I said, there had to be a genesis. There had to be something that caused that. I began to tell him that it was through pride that sin, the cause of all that, entered God's creation. And it did so when Satan sought to exalt himself above God. There's a famous passage in Isaiah chapter 14. There's a companion passage in Ezekiel chapter 28. They give us a, a picture of what happened in the heavenly realms. Now Isaiah is speaking to a king of Tyre, and he's speaking really past the king of Tyre to a spiritual entity that governs that king and that kingdom. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, 
I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Is that a scary thing? Who is that? Who's saying that? Satan is. Apparently he was the most beautiful, the most powerful, the highest of all God's created creatures. In Ezekiel chapter 20, it says, until evil or iniquity was found in him. Pride. His own pride. And as was the case with Satan, pride drives people not, not to only, that he exalts himself, but for people to exalt themselves. Is there, do you ever feel a tension to kind of exalt yourself? To lift yourself up? To say, Yeah. There have always been proud people, egotistical people, self-promoting people. And very often, if not always, they try to usurp authority, seize a place of prominence, elevate themselves over others, even God, if they could. The story of human pride began way, way back. Where did it begin? In the garden, didn't it? Yeah. Began in the Garden of Eden. As it had been in Satan's fall, pride was a major component in the act of disobedience that eventually catapulted the whole human race into sin. It began right there. I love it. I love it when, when people read this and we talk about this, and someone invariably will come and say, I would have never done that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> My next question is. Have you ever done anything that you knew not to do? You would have done it. You've done just what Adam and Eve did. Eve ate the forbidden what? Fruit. I want you to notice something. When you go back and read the text, nowhere is the apple mentioned. That poor fruit has been maligned for who knows how long. It's just fruit. She believed Satan's lie that eating that fruit would make her like who? Make her like God. Look at Genesis chapter 3 with me. In fact, if you're in my class this next week, we're going to cover this passage. For God knows that when you eat of it, that fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. <sighs> Question. Is knowing evil a desirable thing? No. <laughs> he sure makes it sound like it, doesn't it? Oh, you'll, you'll have it all. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, three rational reasons to eat the fruit. She took some and she, what? Ate it. And notice this. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he, what? Just kills me. Guy was standing there the whole time. Yes, dear. <laughs> and from that moment on, pride is at work in the whole human race. I'm going to cite a few examples through the scriptures. Some you're familiar with, some maybe not. You see pride at work. 
Genesis chapter 4. We meet Lamech. Lamech was descended from Cain. What did Cain do? What's Cain notable for? Killed his brother Abel. Why did he kill his brother Abel? Pride, jealousy. And Lamech, descended from Cain, was also a murderer. And he was the first recorded polygamist as well. The first recorded poem in human history, Lamech boasts arrogantly over to his wives about his murder. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Is that bragging? Sadly, yes. But why? Pride. Pride. You go on through Genesis, you go to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We meet a man by the name of Nimrod. Proud man. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, he's described as a mighty warrior on the earth. Now, just reading those words, you think, oh, he's a mighty warrior. But really what those, what those words mean is that he was someone who magnified himself, acted proudly, even was tyrannical. It was Nimrod, under his leadership, that the Tower of Babel was built. And that Tower of Babel was a monument to human pride and to rebellion against God. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them there from all the earth, stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You ever heard the term babbling? That's where it comes from, the Tower of Babel. The point was, they were going to exalt themselves. They're going to make a name for themselves. And God says, mm, I don't think so. And so he confused them. There's a principle there, though, I think is interesting. When you're unified, you can accomplish a lot of things, can't you? They understood that, and so did God. And during Israel's wanderings in the wilderness, we have the account of Nadab and Abihu. Anybody know who Nahab and Abihu were? They were priests. They were Aaron's sons. God killed them. Why did he kill them? Yeah, they offered, they offered unauthorized fire. In other words, they're supposed to take the coals from the altar 
and, and, and use those to burn the sacrifices, yet they did things their own way, not God's way. There's a warning there, isn't it? What motivates you to do things your own way, not God's way? Pride. Pride. And God destroyed them. In the book of Numbers, in chapter 12, another example. Because these are just random examples, but you can go through the whole Old Testament, New Testament, find, find many yourself, examples of pride. Moses' own brother and sister, who were they? Aaron and Miriam. What did they do, do you think? Do you remember? They said, Moses, who do you think you are? We're just as good as you are. God came down, judged them because of their own pride. You recall that? In 2 Samuel, we have the account of David's son Absalom. Anybody remember him? What did Absalom do? Yeah, he sought, he sought to overthrow his father David. Started a coup. But of course, we know how he ended up, right? But it was his pride. It was his arrogance. Absalom. Another of David's sons, Adonijah, also, in 1 Kings, sought to usurp the throne of David, his father. But his attempt failed. Solomon becomes king. Solomon shows Adonijah mercy. And then Adonijah turns right around and tries to what? Usurp Solomon's throne. At which point, Solomon got rid of Adonijah. You don't want to function in pride. In the New Testament, you have four Gospels. Four Gospels describing an entire group of boastful men who sought preeminence. Who were those boastful men that sought preeminence? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? Look with me at Matthew chapter 23. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide, their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. You see that? These are the religious leaders in Israel. A pride can get to us, huh? Really quickly. Luke says this, they justified themselves in the eyes of men. For a show, they made lengthy prayers. John says, they accepted praise from one another. They loved praise from men more than praise from God. Prideful ambition had an ugly presence even among Jesus' own disciples, didn't it? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, Matthew records this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Who were the two sons? James and John. He says, Jesus says, what is it you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and on the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. <laughs> right. 
Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Can you imagine the other guys? What, who do they think they are? Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. He said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what? Servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom of many. So what's our, what, what is our role? What do we do? We climb for attention and position and no, no. So Jesus, in that, in that situation, uses that occasion to instruct his disciples concerning the importance of what? What's the opposite of pride? Humility. We're going to be talking about that in the next couple of weeks, okay? Humility. Let's go back to 3 John. Read with me verse 9. John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. Now, last time, we read about who? Gaius, remember? Is Gaius a good guy? Yeah, Gaius is a good guy. Gracious, hospitable, loved the truth, loved everyone humbly. However, now we see the contrast. We see Diotrephes. He's ungraciously inhospitable, refused the truth, loved himself. He threatened everyone from his position of self-appointed authority in the church. Gaius and Diotrephes were poles apart. The difference between the two was probably not necessarily doctrinal, but behavioral. John doesn't rebuke Diotrephes for heresy as he does so much for haughtiness, for his pride. John's description of Diotrephes as one who loves to be first goes to the heart of the matter. He loved to be first. The phrase describes a person who's selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, and the, the tense of the participle used to describe him is in the continuous present tense. So this was his way of life. He was always like this, always seeking to be first. That diatrophies would, in fact, have nothing to do with John and gossiped maliciously about him indicates just how far he had gone in his arrogance. John the last living apostle of Jesus, maliciously gossiping about him. I didn't want to be around after feast. You think you can wide the earth, right? His desire for power, desire for self-glory, had driven him to reject the authority of Christ Through whom was the authority of Christ mediated to the church? John. So if he's rejecting John, 
maliciously gossiping about John, he's rejecting, in effect, Christ. Do you follow that? He's simply guilty of spiritual pride of the rankest kind. His attitude was that of a self-promoting demagogue who refused to serve anyone but wanted all to serve him. That attitude utterly defies the New Testament teaching on servant leadership, which we read just in Matthew chapter 20. Take the lowest seat. Take the lowest seat, Jesus says. You have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to promote yourself. Take the lowest seat. God knows where you are. God knows who you are. God knows what he's doing in your life. He knows what he's doing with you. Wait to be invited up. Can we do that? Yeah. We don't have to promote ourselves. We don't have to say, hey, but, 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 but me, what about me? That's a dead giveaway. I'm not going to choose you, right? His attitude was that of a self-promoting demagogue. That attitude utterly defies the New Testament teaching on servant leadership. Look at verse 10 now with me. So if I come, now later at the end of the letter, he says he is coming. He's going to meet with him face to face, Gaius. So if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. So John, John says, if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing. John's not about to overlook the challenge to his apostolic authority and hence to Christ's role and his rule in the church. He's going to expose the atrophies probably before the congregation. This is probably not going to be a private thing. Maybe even making his conduct a matter of church discipline. We don't know, but I would certainly do that. John indicts the atrophies on four counts, all in that verse. Each case, the present tense of the verb indicates that those four counts were continual, habitual behaviors. First, Diotrephes was guilty of gossiping maliciously. This is an example of character assassination. When you talk about people behind their backs, you, in effect, assassinate their characters. Most of us don't always speak glowingly of people behind their backs. Should we gossip about people? Should we talk about people behind their backs? Do we do it? Yes, every one of us does it. I catch myself, I just don't do that, stop that. The minute you realize you're in a gossiping conversation, you just say, no, this is gossip, no more. Are you with me? People who gossip that way inevitably are trying to gain someone's trust, not positively by manifesting a godly character, but negatively by destroying somebody else's character in the process. In other words, I want you to think really good of me, so I'm going to put that person down. I'm going to talk about them behind their back. Oh, man. The Bible repeatedly condemns gossip. I've often said that you know, a lot of times we pick out immorality as one of the bad, bad sins. 
Probably the, one of the worst sins in, in the life of the church is gossip. Gossip. You know where we gossip most? In our prayer meetings. <laughs> oh, Lord, help Mary. <laughs> no, no one knows what's going on in Mary's life, but you say, oh, help Mary. Oh, man, everybody's ears perk up, right? Proverbs twenty nineteen. A gossip betrays a confidence. So avoid a man who, what? Talks too much. They're talking about somebody else. They're going to talk about you too. Don't have anything to do with them. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. Paul says now he's, he's going to discipline the Corinthians. And so he tells them ahead of time. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. But you're not going to like what I have to say to you. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, what? Gossip, arrogance, and disorder. He's coming to, to Corinth to rebuke and to correct what's going on, things that he suspects are going on in the life of the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul writes to Timothy, he's talking to him about how to have church and how to deal with different segments of the church. Now he's talking about young widows. He says, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. In other words, a list of widows to be taken care of. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into a habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, also what? Gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. Now, certainly not every young widow does that, but there's a tendency, if they are not occupied with constructive spiritual things, they can become busybodies. Diotrephes, his, his malicious accusations against John were evil, false, and slanderous. He saw John literally as a threat to his own power and to his own prestige in that church, and hence savagely attacked him. Was Jesus savagely attacked? Who attacked him? The ruling class. Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Jesus was a threat to their status quo. He's going to upset the apple cart. He was upsetting the apple cart. And these guys, all they could do was attack him and ultimately say, we need to kill this guy. The second indictment, John says, not satisfied with that, speaking of Diotrephes, not just merely attacking John, Diotrephes defiantly refuses to welcome the brothers. Now, these are people that John had sent out to be itinerant preachers, missionaries, and teachers. These are people that John has approved. So when they show up, Diotrephes says, no, 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 we're not welcoming them. He refused to extend hospitality. And since the Bible commands hospitality, Diotrephes was also guilty of rejecting the word of God. You don't do what God says, you're in effect rejecting his word. Does that make sense? Third, 
Not only did Diotrephes personally refuse to extend hospitality to the brothers, he also stops those who want to do so. So there were people in the church who wanted to welcome these traveling preachers, but Diotrephes, from his position of intimidation and authority, stopped them from doing so by further abusing his power, obstructing and preventing others in the church from showing hospitality to these itinerant preachers. And fourthly, those who defied Diotrephes showed, and showed hospitality were put out of the church. This guy had to be very threatening. He had to have kind of substantial clout in order to excommunicate those who disobeyed him and uh, people that he perceived as a threat. And perhaps that it actually happened to Gaius. We don't know. Which could explain why John is writing to Gaius and explaining to him what's going on in the church. Now, if Gaius was still in the church, he certainly faced hostility and opposition from Diotrephes. And this, of course, prompted John to encourage him not to give in, but to continue to show hospitality in the future. Look with me at verses 5 and 5 through 8. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they're strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. So if Gaius was still in the church, John's encouraging him to continue to welcome these itinerant preachers. Don't be intimidated. And then he switches over to talking about diatrophies in the passage we're looking at uh, this morning. Like most, if not all, conflicts, that stems from pride. You ever found yourself in a conflict with somebody? <laughs> we all do, right? I'm always telling people, look, if you find yourself and you're in a power struggle with somebody, stop. The first one who realizes, recognizes, hey, we're in a power struggle, no more. I'm backing off. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to try to prove my point. I'm not trying to be one-upsmanship here. Because inevitably, we do. We justify ourselves. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. You know, your mother wears grand, uh, combat boots too. Some such comment. You don't. You just back off. You say, you know what? This, this, is, this is not good. This is not healthy. It's pride. Pride that caused diatrophies to slander John, to snub traveling missionaries, and to eliminate those who defied him. His arrogance led to ambition, which resulted in false slanderous accusations, defiance toward apostolic authority, and crushing any opposition in his way. Even more tragically, Many churches, even today, either because they're fearful of them or in the name of tolerance, refuse to deal with their own diatrophies types. They're everywhere, these people. The Apostle John, however, had no hesitation confronting 
this situation. And uh, he's concerned about the good of the church. He's concerned about the honor and the cause of Christ. He's going to confront Diotrephes. Look with me through verses 11 through 15. He says to Gaius, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone that does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. So John John urges Gaius not to imitate what is evil, presumably referring to who, you think? Diotrephes, right? And he is to welcome Demetrius. John urges Gaius to pattern his life after what is good, presumably Demetrius' example. And John's reminder that anyone who does what is good is from God, anyone who does what is evil has not seen God, is a practical application of the moral test of genuine faith. The moral test of genuine faith. What would you think would be be the moral test of genuine faith? We see it in 1 John. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we what? In other words, you're a believer if you are what? Obeying him. You can have confidence. You heard what Jesus says. You do what he says. That's the moral test. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That latter part would define who? Diatrophies, that's right. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as what? Jesus did. Look at chapter 5. This is how we know that we love love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God. To obey his commands, his commands are not burdensome. So if we're to test our lives to see if I'm a believer, how can I tell I'm a real believer? I'm obeying Jesus. Does that include humility or pride? Humility, absolutely, absolutely. So the Bible, I think, is very, very clear that good works do not save. Are we to do good works? Yeah, we're created to do good works, but we can only do them once we are, what, first saved, given a brand new life, so that we can, in fact, do the good works. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Obedience is the external visible proof of salvation. Again, I call your attention to John's Gospel, chapter 14. If you love me, you will what? Be what I command. I've been doing this for over 40 years. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I love the Lord. I I said, then you should be obeying him. You're not obeying him. Don't tell me you love the Lord and you're doing just the opposite of what he says. 
Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. He who loves him, he will love by my father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Diotrephes' refusal to obey God's commands demonstrates, I believe, that he probably was not saved. A lot of people professing salvation just have to look at the fruit of their life. Are they walking in obedience? That's a lesson for us, right? In contrast to his strong indictment of Diotrephes, John now warmly commends Demetrius. Now, we don't really know anything about him. He may have been the one to deliver this letter to Gaius from John. But he was a man of noble Christian character, and that is evident from three sources. Find those in verse 12. Number one, he was well spoken of by everyone. Mm, Isn't that wonderful? He had a great reputation, good reputation, everybody. Everybody spoke well of him. Well known among the Christian community in that region. Secondly, he was committed to living the truth. Thirdly, John adds his own testimony, which he says to Gaius, you know this to be true. John personally commends him. The example of Demetrius shows that a man's worth can be measured by his reputation in the community, his faithfulness to the truth of Scripture, and the opinion of godly Christian leaders they have of him. Demetrius, he received high marks on all accounts. High marks. Now John closes his letter to Gaius, much as he did when he closed his second letter to Gaius. His statement, peace to you, I think is very appropriate, given the apparent strife that's going on in that church, and more particularly, the strife that is focused on Gaius. And I love this. Greet the friends there by name. Isn't that beautiful? I know lots of you by name. I greet you by name. How many come to church and sit basically in the same place every week? Do you know the people around you by name? If you don't, you should. You should introduce yourself. You should get to know them. You should be able to be just up with them. Know them by name. Greet them by name. There's nothing better than to be known by name, huh? You remember the old um, TV show, Cheers? A place where everybody knows your name. <laughs> I love that. So, Third John, I think without question, the concept of truth stands out in this letter. We must know the truth. How are you going to know the truth? You got to read your Bible. You can't speculate. You can't have other people tell you. You read your Bible. You learn the truth. And secondly, you not only learn the truth, but you what? 
you obey the truth. Don't be a hearer only, but be a doer of God's word. And secondly, we're not only to be people of truth, but we are to be hospitable. Hospitable to other faithful believers, and especially those who share the word of God, share the gospel. And finally, we are to pattern our lives after godly examples who live in the truth. Paul says it, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. We don't follow people blindly. We want to find godly examples. This is called discipleship. Every Christian should be in a discipling relationship. Would you agree with me? Somebody should be discipling you. You, in turn, should be discipling somebody else. This is the way. Let's walk in it together. If you're not in a discipling relationship, start by getting in a mini-church. Start by building relationship with other Christians. Be in community. And then the next step would be involved in discipleship. Church, where the truth prevails, the Lord is glorified. We want him glorified in our church, right? Shall the truth prevail? Are we people of the truth? Amen. We're going to talk about this some more, by the way, in the next couple of weeks. Pride, humility. Just going to give you a little preview. Lord, thank you for your provision. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us, God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who lives in us. Thank you for every good gift. We thank you for each other. We thank you, Lord, for the things that you're doing in our lives to make us more like you. As we come to your table, we ask your spirit to search our hearts if there's any prideful way in us. Lord, we may not sense it. We may not be sensitive to it. But Lord, you can, you can point those things out to us that we may confess it to you. Repent of our pride. Lord, come to your table with clean hands. Have your way in us. Again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.